The thing I do love about the No Space is it's pretty small. It's a pretty tight-knit group. We tend to know almost everyone in the space, and that's good. I mean, it's it's bad for the people that don't do good business, but it's great for the people that, you know, do. And I think it's nice because it's a lot easier to form relationships than if you're just strictly in the wholesaling space. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Benjamin Fredericks. Today we're talking all about note investing and Benjamin's unique approach to investing and participating in the note space. Very interesting, very different from the other note investors that we've discussed notes on the show with before. Different approach, different way of doing it, and a completely different scale, I think, than most note investors are going at the business. Very interesting stuff. You're going to learn a ton. If you're ever interested in becoming the bank, becoming the lender in real estate on real property, then this is the show to listen to. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and to date, I've acquired, invested in, partnered on, or otherwise had a hand in over $150 million of multifamily and self-storage real estate investments. I'm excited to be bringing this interview to you today, all this knowledge from Ben Fredericks. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call, and I'll look forward to speaking with you soon. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, and I mean it every time, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Once again, our guest today is Benjamin Fredericks. We're talking about his approach to the note investing business little different from the other note investors we've had on the show in the past. Very interesting. Without any further ado, here we go. Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. Very excited to talk about notes and private lending, how to invest real estate through notes and private lending. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us about what you do and how you invest in real estate? Yeah. First of all, thanks for having me on the show, Taylor. I appreciate it. I got my start really just buying rentals at first in real estate. And while that was a good experience and I continue to own rentals, you know, ultimately, you know, as we were talking about before we kicked off the show, rentals are not always as passive as one might think. And I sort of learned about notes by accident. I'd spent a lot of time in the mortgage space working for Lehman Brothers and and some other companies. And, you know, I came across an investor that kind of showed me the ropes on notes. I never knew it was a possibility. And so what I started doing actually was buying properties at auction in bulk. And that's something I've been doing for the last six or seven years almost. And when we're buying those deals, essentially what we do is we're flipping some of them. And then as many as we can, we're selling on terms, seller finance to create notes. And so that's, that's really where I kind of make my, my space in in this business. Great. Great. So where the heck do you find the ability? Where do you find these deals where you can 
buy them, you know, basically at an auction in bulk. I mean, you don't really hear about that much anymore. Yeah. I mean, it used to be, you'd have to go to like a ballroom, right? And you know, a hotel or the courthouse steps, a lot of, a lot of states still have that. You have to be present at, uh, on the courthouse steps or, you know, at the sheriff's auction in order to buy. But most of the ballroom auctions are, are gone, you know, the way of the dodo bird. So a lot of it is, you know, online auctions are certainly a possibility, but we formed relationships over the years. My partner has been buying deals at auction for like the last 40 years. So he has a tremendous amount of contacts in the space. And so with asset managers, REO, you know, departments and things like that. So a lot of it's relationship business, you know, just like it is, you know, if you're just buying residential and, you know, your, your own neighborhood. Very cool. So normally when we talk about notes on this show, we're talking about going and buying non-performing first or second liens, getting them performing again, and then yeah. either holding them for cash flow or kind of more oftentimes selling them off. But it sounds like your way of approaching this business is actually from the other direction, creating the note and then selling it off. Can you walk us through the the actual business model and, you know, how you're getting these deals and, you know, turning them into yeah. income? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So you're right. I mean, you can go out and buy performing notes or non-performing notes, you know, as, and just be completely passive in that aspect. But my background, like I said, was in mortgage. So I really kind of knew how to underwrite credit, how to underwrite a borrower and, and what to look for. And so it, for me, it was just a natural progression. It, it was, it just made the most sense to me. It wasn't something I really had to spend a lot more time learning, you know, because as you know, I mean, there's, there's a thousand different ways to skin a cat in a real estate business. And especially in notes, like different ways that you can get involved, whether it's partials, non-performing, performing, or novations or subject to, or, you know, and so I was like, man, I don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time in analyzing all these different ways that I could do it. So let me just focus on what I already know. And so that's, that's how I carved out the initial path was just focusing on that. Interesting. Okay. So let's go through an individual deal that you're selling off and, and creating a note and what the terms look like and who your prospective buyer is, the type of property. Walk us through a given sure. deal. Yeah. So most of the properties I'm buying, I mean, they're, you know, probably C-level assets. They're working class neighborhoods, you know, a lot of times they're in smaller town, USA, a lot of Midwest, Rust Belt. And the thing with these areas, I mean, is that a lot of people, they just don't leave, you know? So there's an opportunity there for people that, you know, maybe need an opportunity to get a home and they might not qualify some other way. Maybe they're self-employed. Maybe they don't have 20% to put down or they've had a credit hiccup in the past. You know, we tend to underwrite that in a way you know, that if they've made a mistake, we want to see that they tried to improve upon that mistake and, and get better in their financial responsibility. So that's kind of the way that we go about it. And so they have to go through an application process with, you know, we underwrite it just the same way any loan officer would. So there's a lot of compliance that has to be done thanks to the Dodd-Frank Act. So, you know, we have to have a, a mortgage loan originator, somebody that's licensed, actually collect the documents, look at them, make sure that they qualify, that their debt ratio is all good, that they've gotten the proper disclosures and all of that. And so, and then in, ter in terms of terms, you know, basically it, the beauty of seller finance is that we get to get as creative with those as we want. So, you know, if I'm buying a property, let's call it for, I don't know, $25,000, I can probably sell that property for two and a half, three X of what I bought it for versus if I bought a, a house that's 200000 I can't turn around and sell that for $600,000. That just wouldn't make sense, right? So 
usually that's that's the, the type of property that I like to identify is there multiple that I can do. And the better quality properties, those are good too, because those notes are easier to sell in the secondary market. But ultimately in terms of like what the terms look like, we're usually floating somewhere between nine and 10% on an interest rate. And then my returns, you know, are typically from 20 to 50%, sometimes infinite, depending upon what I bought the property for and what I can get the borrower to put down in terms of down payment. Cool. Okay. So I want to take a, maybe a step back a little bit and be conscious of the listeners who are saying you're selling a note, selling a more like selling it off. What's this? How are you selling a note? How's this all work? So maybe take us and walk us through the basis, basics of you're you know, finding a borrower, getting them qualified, all that kind of a thing. You're creating a note, selling it off. Who's your buyer of that note? How does how do all these numbers work? So I'd like to just take a step back and sure. work on some of the like theory of the note sale. Yeah. So a note sale could basically all you're doing is you're selling your piece of paper that you have secured on that property, right? Your mortgage, your promissory note that somebody has given to you saying, I promise to pay this. And you have a, a first lien position on that property, maybe second, depending upon how you structure your note, right? So that piece of paper can be sold in the secondary market. Think about it. Banks do it all the time. If you've ever had a mortgage, chances are that mortgage has been sold a couple of different times, right? So you get a letter in the mail that says, oh, your mortgage has been sold to ABC Servicing Company. So it's the same system here. And then our buyers are typically people that might have self-directed IRA funds. They're just looking for something that's truly passive, you know, that they don't have to manage. Cause that's like we said, with rental properties, you have to manage rentals. With notes, you don't really have to manage anything. You're the bank. So if you think about it, like when the air conditioner breaks on the property, right? They're calling you as a landlord, come fix it. Well, if you own a home and you're paying a mortgage to the bank, if the air conditioner breaks, you don't call your bank saying my air conditioner broke. They say, so what? <laughs> Fix it. So, you know, my, I, my love for this game is, is that it's about as passive as you can get. The only time that I'm really super active involved is if there's a problem with that note. Like if it has to get foreclosed on or, you know, or if I have to uh, watch my servicing company and make sure they're not nickel and diming me just like management companies do to rental property. So. But that's really about it. Like that's that's the the nuts and bolts of it. Cool. Okay. So moving into you know you're giving deals, you're looking, you're considering selling the note, and in any given case, the note might have an unpaid principal balance of just round numbers, a hundred thousand dollars. Sure. But you're presumably selling that note for less than a hundred thousand dollars. Plus, there's interest involved there. So. How do you work the numbers? And you mentioned earlier about needing a certain, you know, multiple on your initial investment in order to make it work. So how do you think about that and how much of a haircut you're willing to take on the unpaid principal balance and, and the you know, interest rates and all that kind of thing? How do you work the numbers on these? Yeah. Things? So, I mean, it's all negotiable, right? So the other thing you got to think about too is like one thing that's missing from what you just said there is that is what's the payment history on that note? Is the borrower paying mm -hmm. on time, right? So if they've done a great job, of paying, like let's say, and the longer they've been paying, if I have that note for two years and they've never missed a beat, it's worth more on the secondary market than a note I just created three months ago, even though they've never missed a beat. All right. So it's tip because I've got some payment history behind it. So yeah, I mean, to answer that question is kind of difficult because it, it can change with, as the market changes. So, but if, if it's a performing note, like a lot of secondary market buyers you know, they might pay, 
90 to 95 cents on the dollar for that note. It really just depends on the quality of the asset and the quality of the borrower. If it's a non-performing note, then it's a sliding scale down from there, you know? So non-performing is a whole different beast because now they're thinking about, okay, if I have to take, they're always thinking this, but now they're really thinking this is if I got to take this property back, can I make some more on the back end, you know, on this deal as well, based on fixed built-in equity. So, but when I, when I'm looking at a deal from the get-go, I'm looking at it from the margin of the idea of like, okay, worst case scenario, I sell this note. I, I don't really want to sell my notes. Like the only time I have ever sold notes is like when I want to recapitalize to do more deals. And even then I might be just selling off a, a portion or what we call a partial of a note, which I'm happy to talk about as well. Okay. Okay, great. So happy to get into partials before we get there. I do want to ask about, you know, rates. We're in a rising interest rate environment, which we haven't been in for, you know, a number of years. They're so high and mortgage rates are getting pushed upward. How is that impacting, you know, your business and the rates that you're looking for? Because even rates for, you know, owner occupants with good credit, you know, first time home buyers, whatever, are up considerably. And in this case, you're dealing with more distressed assets, more buy more distressed buyers. So how's that impacted your, your rates? Yeah, to this point, it really hasn't. Our rates have always been higher anyways. So, I mean, quite frankly, it probably impacted us more over the last couple of years because rates were so low and people were like, oh my God, 9%. But usually they don't care about them. Usually it's the payment. I mean, that's, that's the world we live in, right? So my first job ever in sales was selling cars. People never cared about the rate. All they cared about was the payment. What's this going to cost me every single month and can I afford it? And that's the, that's really the big deal. So rate. For me, it's a non-factor. Like I don't, I don't really care what happens with interest rates. Doesn't, doesn't move the needle for me. Wow, that's interesting. And that's I appreciate that you kind of turned the perspective around and said we were in a weird environment the past couple of years, and we're just kind of getting back to some kind of normalcy, if I understand correctly. So <laughs> whatever that you mentioned, is. <laughs> <laughs> whatever that is, that's right. You mentioned partials. Let's dig into that. Tell us about that. I mean, we've sure. talked about it in the show in the past, but. I'm not, I would say I'm not particularly savvy on that particular topic. Yeah. Partials was something that was actually really an interesting theory to me and, or a, a way of practicing in this space, because after I was in the mortgage industry, I, I spent a lot of time in financial services. And one of the things that was big in that space was annuities. So I, that's kind of how I look at partials. So essentially what it is, is I can take my piece of paper that I have on a property and maybe I bite off a third of it, right? And I sell it to you for a particular price. And then for the next, if it's a 30-year note, let's say for the next 10 years, you're going to take over those payments, collecting them, all right? After your 10 years is up, this is like a, a deferred annuity for me as an investor. I get money back that I can reinvest and redeploy into other assets, ideally creating more cash flow. Or, and then, I'm sorry, and then in 10 years, once you are paid back in full for your investment, those payments turn back on for me. So for another 20 years, I'm going to continue to get paid on that note. Now, we all know most people in America don't stay in their home for 30 years, right? It's just not really mm -hmm. the average. Like I think the stat is most people move every seven and a half to eight years, somewhere in that range. So what happens in that scenario? Well, if they sell the property, you as the person that bought a third of that note are going to get paid off in full right? So you've recapped your, your entire investment. And then I'm also going to get paid in full. So for the remaining 20 years that I was owed. So if they refinance, same 
same story, right? You're going to get paid. I'm going to get paid. It's just happening faster is all. So those two scenarios for me are worst case. I'm always kind of bummed when somebody pays off one of my notes, <laughs> but you know, it's just kind of the way it works. And, and that's, that's the, you know, the big argument that I see between rental investors and note investors. Well, the rental investors always say, well, someday they're going to pay you off and that cash flow is going to end. A hundred percent true. So it's a, it's a good argument. And quite frankly, it's why I own both. I own rentals and notes. So you always do have to keep that money working if you're in a note, but that's not the worst of all things, I don't think. Okay. Interesting. So real estate, you know, one of the things we like to do as real estate investors and, and, you know, myself included in this is scale and utilize other people's money yeah. in our deals. How does this impact your business? How are you, are you working with investors outside of yourself? Like, what do you, what do you do? Yeah. So when we got started, that's, that's exactly what we did was using OPM. So, you know, we were using private money to take down a lot of these deals. And so that's something that you have to structure, you know, accordingly with your partners. So you could do that in a couple of different ways. You could do joint venture. You could do just a straight interest rate that you want to pay. You're a private money lender. That's really up to for you to negotiate. But if you're doing joint venture, it's just more and more paperwork that you have to keep track of over time. But it's, they're both equitable and, and workable deals. Okay. So how you mentioned joint venture, you know, all these other people, I think a big question that people have when they want to get involved in real estate and they don't really know how, maybe they don't know anybody who's involved. How do you think about like making these connections and meeting these people? Are you going to local networking events or these national events you go to to meet people? Like what's your strategy? Yeah. So I got started in the no space by going to Noteworthy, which shameless plug, I'm a part owner of now, but I, I got involved in that business just because I was creating so many notes that I wanted to have, you know, a vast network of other note investors. So people that one that I could learn from, you know, as I was like really kind of making my bones in the space, but also so I'd have like a distribution channel for my notes if I did decide that I wanted to sell them in the future. So yeah, certainly going to events like Noteworthy is a great place to start, you know, go to places that are more education based and not, you know, let me sell you a program space. And certainly your local RIA groups are, are sources for that. There are always note investors, but if you... If you look up like the self-directed trust companies around the country, if you happen to live near one, go to their events because they, they offer a lot of education in the space. And then there's also a lot of investors that go to those meetings that are looking to deploy capital, looking to buy assets, looking to buy paper. So yeah, there's, there's a multitude of, of areas to meet people in the space. The thing I do love about the no space is it's pretty small. It's a pretty tight knit group. We tend to know almost everyone in the space and that's good. I mean, it's, it's bad for the people that don't do good business, but it's great for the people that, you know, do. And I think it's nice because it's a lot easier to form relationships than, you know, if you're just strictly in the wholesaling space. I, I noticed like in your background there, you had some stuff on uh, storage, right? So mm -hmm. self-storage space, probably pretty, pretty small too, right? Comparatively speaking yes. to single family investing. So, you know, the same kind of nuance there, I think. So. I would recommend, you know, just checking out those types of events and, and you'll find something that works for you. Great. Yeah. I mean, I think the storage and multifamily space as well are incredibly small. I mean, it's, it's wild how, how small these, these networks really are. So one aspect that I didn't touch on that I definitely want to ask you about is when you're finding these deals, the physical due diligence of the properties you're buying, especially if you're buying them online, what do you do? 
before you buy it? If anything, do you send somebody to go drive by and make sure the property exists? I mean, what's the the process? Because when you're buying a ton of properties all at once, it's hard to dig into the minutia, but yeah. you got to do like a minimum level of DD, right? Yeah. So it, and it is minimum. <laughs> so like when we're, <laughs> when we're buying deals, right? So it, sometimes we might get 15 to 20 deals from an auction in a month and they're scattered. Like I'm not talking they're in one location, Chicago, Illinois, they're like ones in Texas, ones in Alabama, three are in Missouri and you know, wherever. So we know that it's when you're buying in bulk, right? Like we have a, this understanding and knowledge that probably 10 to 15% of them are just not going to work out. They just aren't like I've bought deals where the deal was no, the house was no longer there. It had burnt down, you know? So, <laughs> but I, but knowing that the other 85 to 90% of those deals are going to make good money. A lot of people can't wrap their mind around that, which is why what we do is kind of unique and, you know, different. So, but in terms of additional due diligence, you know, one, we, we will have a realtor go out if there's a local realtor in the market that will go out and just check it out for us, do a drive by, get some basic information, tell us what we're dealing with. But a lot of times, Taylor, I mean, look, man, a bank will call us and say, we want to sell you this deal and we'll sell it to you today if you can pay this. So, and we have to decide like now, do we want this deal? And so it can be a limited time and that's intimidating to a lot of people, but it served us well. And, you know, do we, do we get burned on some literally? Yes, absolutely. But that's, <laughs> that's, I could count those on one hand. Wow. Okay. So before we move on to the three questions I ask every guest on the show, what do you think is the biggest mistake or misstep that new note investors make when they're first getting into the realm of note investing? Mm. I, th I think, well, probably the biggest mistake you can make is there's, prob there's probably two answers to that question. One is not having enough education on how to do the, the proper due diligence to buy a note. Second is if you're on the note creation side, knowing how to maximize the value of your note, because that's really where you're going to make the money, right? So if you can learn from people on how to maximize the value of your note by just having the right paperwork in your package. It makes, it can make all the difference. I mean, depending upon how many notes you do, you could be talking about a difference of hundreds of thousands of dollars in the value of your notes. If you just had the right paperwork in the, in the package. Now, if you're buying notes, it's knowing what the right paperwork is so that if it's not in there, you're not overpaying for the note. So, you know, it, it works both ways. Gotcha. Okay, great. Well, you know, I know a lot of folks in the space who are seeing a lot of success. So it's very interesting. I think that's a notes are an area where coming from the outside, the non-real estate investing space, you don't know that you can become the bank. You don't know that you can buy mortgages and debt and all that kind of thing at a discount, make cash flow and create notes and all this kind of a thing. So definitely always cool to talk about. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. 
Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Ben, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Fire away. Awesome. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Education is always probably the easiest answer, which is probably why you say not to answer it that way. <laughs> but I, I think uh, the best investment that I, it's, it's the one that always sticks with you. It's like your first, right? So it's the first property you ever bought. Like that to me is like the best thing that I ever bought because one, it gave me a tremendous amount of confidence. Like it, I, and I spent a lot of time thinking about what I was going to buy first. And so it kind of got lost in analysis paralysis, not going to lie for a good chunk of time. And then, you know, once you buy that first deal, it gives you a tremendous, and it works and you you do well, it gives you a tremendous confidence boost to go out and do more. So I think it's, it starts with one and it's always the first step is the hardest one to take, but it's so, so valuable. Getting that first, that first, you know, wire to hit your account or whatever it is, getting that first check back from yeah. a deal cashing it and seeing, oh, wow, this works. Yeah. The hundred, awesome. the hundred I got, I've got my first check framed right over here. Yeah. The hundredth wire is not as exciting, right? But that first one is very exciting. <laughs> You're just like, you always remember it. Oh, big time, big time. You always got to think about it and go back to it. Of course. Yeah. That helps yeah, push you forward. So we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Oh, there's, there's a bunch of those. So, I mean, there, there's deals that have just not gone well, but I mean, probably from a financial standpoint, probably the worst investment I've ever made is a lake lot that I own. It, I, I bought that, I bought that lake, that lot with the intention of building a home on it for my family. And we are going to do that, but it, it's just a drain on me every single month. I have to pay those HOA fees for this beautiful golf club and all this place, all these facilities that I don't even use. It's three states away, but for me, it's the carrot on the end of the stick. And I feel like I'm hitting myself with that stick every single month. So right now, I won't say it's the, it's not the best yet, but right now for me, it's the one that always sticks in my crawl every month that I'm making that, I'm writing that check. So I'd have to call that one the worst if I had to name one. <laughs> well, Someday my favorite question there. here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Yeah, a mentor of mine brought this to me a couple of years after I really needed it. With, and it's, it's simple. It's so simple. It's data, not drama. That's it. Like, does, is, does the data on the deal make sense? I don't get emotionally attached to any one deal anymore, you know, because that would happen initially, especially at auctions. Like I would just get very excited about getting a particular deal and then it just wouldn't pan out for whatever reason. It was usually price. And my mentor said to me, look, there's always going to be another deal. You don't need to worry about that one. Sometimes the best deal you ever do is the one you don't do. And so just stick to the data, stick to your numbers. And if it fits your buy box, great. If it doesn't, don't worry about it. You make your number. That's it. Don't allow any of the outside drama into the, the offer, you know, and that's it. Just stick with your data and then push forward. 
So I think that's yeah. the most valuable. Don't get thing distracted by shiny objects. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it, and no, that's everywhere, right? So we have shiny objects coming at us like warp speed, but I think, you know, there's so many deals at, at least a couple of years ago, there were so many deals where you've seen them in auction. You're like, oh my God, you get so jazzed about one particular deal and you're not focused on other opportunities that are around because you're emotionally involved in it. So yeah, just stick to the numbers in your, in your deal and everything else will take care of itself. Awesome. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all of these note investing lessons with our listeners. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about what you're up to or anything like that, where can they track you down? Yeah. So probably the easiest place to connect with me is on Facebook or Instagram. On Instagram, I'm just at Benjamin Fredericks. Also, you can connect with me on Noteworthy. So if you go to noteworthyusa.com and if you want to check out our events, we have an events tab there as well. We have one coming up at the end of February in Anaheim. So if you want to learn more about notes, I'd highly encourage you to come out. They're not salesy. We're not pitching products. It's really a lot of great note investors that come to give back and serve the community of people that want to either get better as note investors or just learn it overall. So I'd, I'd invite you to, to connect with us there and I'd love to meet you face to face. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today to everybody out there. Thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating interview on Apple podcast five stars. If you don't mind, you guys, I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye bye.